The topic for today's session is Cantillon effects. Um, you may look at your schedules and it says Austrians versus mainstream. You may look at the slides and the subtitles is slightly different. Um, it's only apparently different though, because as I will try to point out to you throughout the session, the difference between the way Austrians and the mainstream look at Cantillon effects and at money can be also summarized by this quote, short quote from uh, one of Mises' essays. Um, where he puts it very bluntly as money is not non-neutral or it does not exist. No? So pretty much this is gonna, gonna be the idea that I'm gonna try to convey to you throughout, um, throughout this session as to what the difference is between the way Austrian economics conceptualizes money, the way Austrian economics thinks about this process of Kantian effects, and the way this is completely lacking from mainstream economics. Um, before we begin though, and I give you the overview of um, of what we're going to be talking about today. Um, I wanted to do a, a little show of hands just to um, gauge the idea that you have about this concept, whether you've come across it or not um, before, whether you've studied it or not. Um, what I wanted to ask was what part of economic theory do you think Cantillon effects refers to? Does it have to do with macroeconomics, microeconomics? Is it something that pertains to monetary economics? Or is it something that has to do with economic theory in general? So who's for economic theory in general? Excellent. Um, who's for monetary economics? Right. And those who abstain, we shall find out later <laughs> what they actually think, yeah? Well. What I'm going to try to point out to you today is that this concept actually actually has to do with economic theory in general more so than it does with monetary e economics. Of course, it is a concept that explains the impact of money yeah, on prices and the distribution of wealth. But in order to do that, this concept actually is part of the foundation of economic theory. And I'll try to explain that um, in a minute. Um, but I want before that to read to you a passage from Mises' memoirs. I'm actually going to um, use Mises' memoirs quite a lot today. On the one hand, it's a complimentary copy, so feel free to grab one as you go. Um, but uh, I'm going to use Mises' memoirs in the chapter on where he describes how he wrote Theory of Money and Credit. Because I think here he is being very honest and uh, about what his project was in Theory of Money and Credit. And it relates a lot to the idea of Cantillon effects. Yeah. Uh, Mises says that the greatest difficulty he had in preparing theory of money and credit was that he intended to deal with only a portion of the broad scope of economic problems. But economics must necessarily be a closed unified system. One cannot extract bits and pieces and study them independently. In economics, there is no such thing as specialization. Well, if you take that out of context, then my lecture on Monday is... Uh, whoever deals with a part must do so on the basis of a theory that encompasses all problems. Yeah? So when we talk about Cantillon effects, you will see that we do talk about, uh, about it on the, on the basis of like, general economic theory. And it's not just something that relates strictly to monetary economics. Okay, enough on that. Um, what I'm going to talk to you about today very briefly. So we're going to have a bit of a, um, a, bit of history um, of, of the concept. Yeah, how Cantillon effects is um, present in the history of economic thought, or rather absent from the history of economic thought, as you will see. 
Uh, we will then talk about the definition, the, the original insight that Cantillon had, and then the definition and the um, explanation that Mises gave for, for this idea of Cantillon effect. Um, then I'm going to explain that in a little bit more detail and how I see this process being a two-fold process, yeah? a con two congeneric parts of, of a, the same process that concern purchasing power and wealth. Um, we're obviously going to talk a little bit about the neglect of Cantillon effects in the mainstream and the analogies that they use to cloud the issue of money neutrality and non-neutrality. And of course, we'll end with implications and applications of Cantillon effects, with applications particularly referring to lines of research that I myself am pursuing and for which I would like to whet your appetite as well. So um, I was having a, a trouble trying to explain to you how Cantillon effects are present in the history of economic thought, particularly because of the fact, as I was saying, that the history of economic thought and history of monetary thought in particular are marked by a tremendous absence of any discussion of this on this concept. So the concept, the insight, belongs obviously to Cantillon, who wrote his essay on commerce in general in the 1720s, and it was published in 1755. However, no one mentions that insight later on. No one refers to it as Cantillon's insight or as Cantillon's effects. Mises himself never referred to it as Cantillon effects. Yeah? Um, it was only Mark Blaug in 1985, in his History of Economic Thought, that actually coined the term Cantillon effects. So you may wonder why do we use that and we, not, we don't use another term for this process. Well, the idea is that all the other terms that are present in the History of Economic Thought that tend to relate to this same process are actually terms that deny its existence, as it were. I was having a conversation with Professor Salerno this morning about his calculation socialism lecture, if you've attended it, where he's talking about the socialists dreaming of anti-beasts appearing, like the anti-lions, where all the bad characteristics of a lion would disappear, and then the perfect lion that would serve human needs would appear. Pretty much that's how monetary economists ended up talking about money, looking at money as it is, and dreaming of a way of making money be anti-money, yeah? All the characteristics that make money the driving force of the economy disappearing, yeah? Um, pretty much that's through, through monetary policy, yeah? The, they're making that the aim of monetary policy. Um, as I said, so the, the concept is not specifically mentioned as Cantillon effects um, in, in the history of economic thought until very, very recent years in the very notable modern Austrian you see here uh, uh, mentions it. But um, elements of, yeah, that, that was subtle, wasn't it? Um, uh, there's elements, however, of the same kind of uh, analysis in uh, Jean-Baptiste Say work and uh, John Cairns, Mises mentioned Cairns and a, as a precursor uh, of this uh, of this idea, uh, elements of it in Menger, but obviously the best exposition of 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 the process of Cantillon effects is in Mises' theory of money and credit and Mises' human action, and then in a particular essay that Mises titled "The Non Neutrality of Money," yeah, which was published in 1938, and it's in the Money Method and Market Process collection published. Um, on the right hand here on the slide, you have pretty much the rest of monetary economics, yeah? Who do not talk about Cantillon effects at all. Uh, at the beginning, you have the classical economists who uh, originated the quantity theory of money. 
Um, and according to them, um, money or changing the money supply, yeah. Um, gave the quantity theory of money postulated that a change in the money supply gave rise to proportional and simultaneous modifications in the level of prices, yeah, and left relative prices unchanged. Um, they did touch a little bit on some type of short run effects between the change in the money supply and the change in the level of prices, um, but they 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 considered these to be purely frictions due to what they called an illusion of money, yeah. The term money illusion was later used by Fisher, who also explained that uh, monetary changes have a temporary real impact, and they're just the outcome of people's misperceptions about um, uh, money and the purchasing power of money, and the slow, their uh, expectations adjusted very slowly. Yeah. Um, Obviously, you will you will see here the names of like monetarists, and um, here can be included you know all the neo-Keynesian, post-Keynesian monetary theories, and so on. However, I would like to draw your attention to this name here, of uh, Bombavirk. According to Mises, Bombavirk himself neglected. Um, the aspect of Cantillon effects. And Bombavik himself believed that money supply gave eventually in the long run rise to, um, um, that the money supply in the long run um, made prices rise simultaneously and proportionally, yeah? Um, again, I'll, go, I'll come back to, the, to Mises' memoirs where he says, Bombavik tacitly assumed the neutrality of money uh, he raised uh, no objections to my analysis, uh, or to, and he did not deny his results, namely that changes in purchasing power, this is what Mises' analysis um, was about, that um, changes in purchasing power of money cause prices of different commodities and services to change neither simultaneously nor evenly. But he did maintain that this was a friction phenomenon. And Mises goes on to say, I tried in vain to convince Baum of the inadmissibility um, of the use of metaphors borrowed from mechanics. We'll come back to that. Um, so, um, as you can see here, so most of the history of monetary thought is marked by an absence of a discussion of Cantillon effects. And I will stress the point again that it's pretty much in Mises. Um, before him, they're just scattered insights. Uh, about about this process, and it's it's in Mises that um, this concept actually um, um, was it was explained uh, fully. And the reason for that is that in order to explain Cantillon effects, um, the economic theory that you're using needs to accomplish something fundamental, that is a reconciliation of the analysis of the real and the monetary realm. And this is what Mises was trying to do in the theory of money and credit and throughout his works. Yeah? In the mainstream, the two areas of the economy are separated. Money is an extra market convention. Money is not a commodity. Money does not appear on people's value scales. Yeah? For Mises, however, money is a commodity. It is valued like all the other commodities. It appears on people's value scales, and that changes the whole of the analysis. But again, in order to do that, you need to work at the foundations of economic theory of how you understand subjective value and prices and how you understand money. Yeah? It cannot be something that can be just introduced later on in a model. So now, how do we define Cantillon effects? I think the best and shortest 
um, definition is Cantillon effects represent the differential impact of a change in the money relation. That is, the fact that a change in the money supply or in the money demand will alter or, if you want, revolutionize the price structure and the distribution of wealth. We use the term alter or revolutionize because there is no better way of describing this. The price structure doesn't go up or down or shift to the left or to the right, yeah? Wealth does not necessarily just diminish or increase and so on, yeah? There's a process, there's a revolution in the market with a change in the, mo in the money relation. Cantillon had an insight about this, uh, as I was saying, in, uh, in the 1720s. Um, and um, the way he, he described this process was the dearness caused by this money, yeah, so the, the rise in prices caused by the um, increase in the money supply, does not affect equally all kinds of products and merchandise proportionably to the quantity of money. Um, the new money that is introduced in the economy gives a new turn to consumption and even a new speed to circulation, but it is not possible to say exactly to what extent. Again, this was just an insight in Cantillon. He didn't fully ex uh, explore the implications of it. It was Mises who did it. Yeah? And Mises described Cantillon effects as follows. When there's an increase in the money supply, just um, uh, for the economy of the seminar, we will generally talk about an the effects of an increase in the money supply. Again, Cantillon effects occur when there's a change in the money demand as well. But for the purposes of, of the explanation, we will only refer to increases in general of the money supply because that tends to be the more, you know, prevalent case um, historically. So... Um, Mises said that when there's an increase in the money supply, not all the prices and wages rise, and those which do rise do not rise to the same degree. Yeah. As long as inflation is in progress, there is a perpetual shift in income and wealth from some social group to other social groups. Prices in this new order, after an increase in the money supply, cannot simply be a multiple of previous prices. Yeah. Mises is basically denying Denying may be too strong of a word, but let's let's use it. Maybe Mises is basically denying the quantity, the, cl the classical version of the quantity theory of money. Yeah. Now, if you look then at this process through Mises's lens, you can notice that he makes two points here. Yeah, one is the the effect on prices, and the un the other one is the effect on wealth. Yeah, and we will talk about this in what follows. The idea of the Cantillon effect is in fact a twofold process. Now, when we have a change in the money supply, um, we said that prices, um, let's say you have an increase in the money supply, generally we can say that prices uh, will increase. Yeah? But as Mises says, prices will not all increase at the same time and to the same extent. Um, with, this can also be explained as the price structure is altered. Yeah, some prices increase, some prices decrease, some do more than others, yeah, so the entire price structure is altered. Or the purchasing power of money changes. Money supply increases, purchasing power of money goes down, yeah. These two are congeneric processes, yeah, they, they happen at the same time. It's not because the purchasing power of money changes that the price structure changes, or because the price structure changes that the purchasing power of money changes. They occur at the same time. They're actually one and the same thing. And the reason for this is that the purchasing power of money is actually the inverse of the price structure. So if you see here, this is, let's say, the purchasing power of one dollar, yeah? 
again, the food theme is the thing with me. Yeah, so it's uh, one dollar can buy one coffee, half a donut, and a quarter of an apple, and of course, you know, etc. All the other portions of the goods and services in the economy that one dollar can buy. This is the purchasing power of one dollar. It is an array of quantities. It's a heterogeneous array of quantities. Yeah. You cannot add these things and come up with a number or a quantity. Yeah, it's a heterogeneous array of quantities. This is the purchasing power of one dollar. Alternatively, the price structure in an economy, we can, we can explain it as one coffee is one dollar, one donut is two dollars, one apple is four dollars, and so on. Yeah? And if you notice, yeah, this is the purchasing power, this is the price structure, and the purchasing power is one over the price structure. Yeah? So, the idea here is if the money supply increases, the purchasing power of money decreases. But how does the purchasing power of money decrease? By changing the price structure, yeah? By altering the price structure. You cannot have the two change independently. You cannot have the purchasing power of money going down without changing the price structure, yeah? That's what Mises says when he says prices do not change simultaneously and evenly. They cannot change simultaneously and evenly because they're, it's, a, it's a heterogeneous array in both situations. Now, if you want an analogy of this, and we will come back to the idea of how useful analogies are in this particular topic, but if you want an analogy, the only one that I know that is useful is Arthur uh, Margit's uh, comparison of the price structure with a swarm of bees. So, word of caution, these are bees. Not kites or bugs, they're bees. I know you're, you know. So imagine this is the price structure in the economy. Yeah? This is one price and the relationship, yeah, the, the relative positions of the bees is the relative positions of prices next to each other. Yeah, the idea of relative prices in the economy. So now let's say you have an increase in the money supply, so prices rise. So what happens is the swarm of bees changes altitude, yeah? However, as the swarm moves from this position to this position, the relative positions of individual bees is permanently altered, yeah? Bees do not just fly all of them upwards, yeah? The way prices do not simultaneously and evenly just move upwards, yeah? I have some arrows here trying to explain that, yeah? I have a bee from there. The idea that this is trying to convey may be a little tortured <laughs> in the way I'm presenting it, but um, is that as the price swarm changes altitude, the individual prices or the individual the position of individual bees within the swarm will alter their position permanently. Yeah? All right. I think it's enough on that. Now, that's, that's still a secret for a second. Um, what I wanted to say before that, um, just to, to, to wrap up on this, is that once you understand the purchasing power, the, the, the idea that the purchasing power is the inverse of the price structure, um, you can use this to um, um, understand um, what the purchasing power parity theory is, yeah? the idea of the determination of exchange rates and how exchange rates are determined as a result of interpersonal individual equilibria in the market and not something that is determined by the state of the balance of payments, let's say. I'm not going to go into detail, but I had something funny because I, I said I was going to use the memoirs a lot. Uh, Mises explains that once he... Um, uh, he explained the purchasing power as such. He was able to to um, um, 
explain also the formation of exchange rates through what was later called purchasing power parity theory. Now, the purchasing power parity theory is known to have belonged to, to have been originated by Gustav Kassel. However, Kassel only discovered the theory four years after Mises' theory of money and credit. Mises was aware of this, and he says, um, Soon after, Gustav Kassel presented um, the doctrine in inexpedient form and designated it the purchasing power parity theory. During the 1920s, it was called one of two things. Kassel's theory, if one agreed with it, and Mises's theory, if one rejected it. <laughs> well, um, right. So this is one side of the Kantian effect, yeah? One, one part of the process. The second one concerns the distribution of wealth. So the idea here is just as the relative positions of individual prices are changing continuously as there is a change in the purchasing power of money, so does the distribution of individual incomes and wealth. Yeah, They too undergo permanent um, uh, changes and remain altered even after the, the, the change in the money supply has affected all um, it's uh, has affected the, the has had the entire impact on the economy. Yeah. Now we said before that as far as prices are concerned, we don't know what prices are going to go up and it, to what extent and so on. As far as the distribution of wealth being affected, we have somewhat of an inkling of the path that this distribution of wealth is going to take through the economy. So, and it has to do with the with the place of injection of the new money supply. So obviously. Um, it would be the governments that would print um, the new money and increase the money supply. Um, and obviously the first people that these money are going to go to is the people working in the government or, as I blatantly put it on the slide, the government cronies. Yeah, They will be the first to um, receive a quantity of the new money. Um, then the money would be spent on, would, would further go to uh, defense contractors, and obviously uh, today they go to credit markets, yeah, so they will affect the prices of stocks and bonds. Then the money will trickle down to commodity markets, yeah, and to the producers of goods and services, and so on. The, uh, this here is supposed to suggest to you that we can pretty much trace the first receivers of the new money, and the social groups that tend to be the very last receivers of the new money. The exact path in between those who are more likely to be the first receivers and those who are more likely to be the last receivers is very difficult to pinpoint. Yeah? So as the money supply trickles down through the economy that way, wealth will tend to be redistributed from the last receivers of the new money towards the first receivers. Yeah, so the people in these social groups here will lose wealth and the people in these social groups here would gain wealth. And we can see what, how that happens through how Mises explained it. So um, Mises explained as follows. So as prices change in the economy gradually and unevenly, some prices will tend to rise first. Yeah. The people that sell commodities and services or their labor, whatever they're selling, yeah, the people that um, sell commodities and services when at, at the prices who rise first obtain higher yeah, prices for the commodities they sell. However, prices have not yet adjusted in the rest of the economy, so they pay the old prices still. 
yeah? So they gain from this differential. Conversely, the people who sell commodities and services at the prices who remain the same for a while or even decrease will at the same time have to pay rising prices in the economy during this process, yeah? So they lose and they give up wealth. Again, it is difficult to pinpoint exactly which social groups will undergo these transformations, but it's, it is absolutely impossible to pinpoint the individuals that will gain or lose wealth. Yeah? They're not the same from one process of inflation to the other. Yeah? The, um, so there's no way to pinpoint the chain of effects in order to do something such as index labor contracts to account for the fact that, I don't know, um, you're in a fixed uh, income, and as a result as inflation, and before your salary adjusts, you keep paying higher prices. No one can pinpoint exactly the extent of the effect that this will have. Yeah? In order to, as I said, index contract, you cannot adjust your expectations in order to neutralize yeah, these effects. And the government cannot change their minds and do something in order to offer compensation for this transfer of wealth. Um, so the idea is, you can put it like this, you would need superhuman abilities to be able to track down the path that the distribution of wealth um, will have uh, in the economy following a change in the money supply. But you can make an even stronger point. Like I like the point of superhuman abilities, but it kind of reminds me of Hayek's knowledge argument for socialism. There's a stronger argument to be made, which reminds me of Mises' prices argument, an economic calculation argument for socialism, which is, in order for prices to change, exchanges need to be made. Prices do not arise unless they're exchanges. But once those exchanges are made, there's a new distribution of goods and services in society. So there's a new distribution of wealth. So it's not about, even if I know how prices are going to change, in order for those prices to change, I have to participate in exchange. And as a result, my, the distribution of wealth would be affected. The distribution of goods and services in the economy will be affected, and the distribution of wealth would be affected. So I think that's the, uh, an even stronger like, argument that can be made here. Yeah? Right. Um, now, you may not find it surprising that mainstream economic theory um, neglects this entirely. Um, Partly it's due to, as I said, the intellectual inheritance yeah, and the history of economic thought. Partly, um, or maybe, I don't know, the proportion of this, but it's due to the use of uh, mathematical formalization in their monetary theory, which does not allow for them to conceptualize such dynamic changes. So um, they do, however, like to talk whether money matters or money doesn't matter. Yeah, um, as far as the real economy is concerned. And they do disagree amongst themselves to the extent that money matters or not. Um, some will argue that money matters in the short run. Um, and that's to be taken in the more old-fashioned Keynesian sense that when the central bank increases the money supply, I think someone's trying to get in. It's a very sought-after uh, lecture. Um, <laughs> Judging by your faces, it is. Uh, <coughs> so they will argue that when the central bank increases the money supply, um, people all will, uh, entrepreneurs in particular, would operate a while under the illusion of money. They won't realize, yeah, that uh, uh, that the changes in prices are due to an increase in the money supply. So they will they will go and they were higher 
resources such as idle labor, yeah, otherwise idle labor, and therefore increase employment. Eventually, prices will rescale, yeah, prices will adjust. So the central bank will have to increase the money supply again, you know, um, and we'll have to do this trying in the long run to get as close as possible to full employment, even at the expense of price inflation, yeah? Others would argue that money matters even in the long run. Yeah, it's just not, not just a short run uh, impact on the real economy, but it, it matters in the long run. And here is where um, all the market frictions interfere to prevent the real economy to rescale yeah, the prices up to what their levels should be following a change in the money supply. And within these frictions, again, there's everything from, you know, um, price stickiness, information, um, everything but the kitchen sink, basically. I found out there's something called um, money stickiness as well, the fact that people don't spend it as fast as they should, which does not allow the prices to increase, yeah, and so on. Um, ManQ has something now about information stickiness that people don't realize how quickly they should, yeah, and so on. So pretty much everything is chucked in this idea that money matters in the long run. However, that what I'm, as far as Cantillon effects are concerned and the understanding of this process, the implication here is clear that there is a real economy and there is a monetary economy and that the change in money supply should eventually rescale prices up, yeah? There's not an understanding that prices never rescale, that prices never change simultaneously. Yeah, The implication here, here is that they should, and maybe monetary policy should do something to allow for that smooth rescaling. Again, the idea that money should be something that it's not. Yeah, That money should be something that allows prices to rescale like that. What can we do about it? Maybe keep the price level stable or something like that. Yeah. And finally, some say money does not matter, which tends to imply monetary policy is not really that effective because people anticipate the changes and they just adjust automatically to whatever changes they anticipate is going to happen after the increase in the money supply, and that's it. Yeah, You can't even trick them anymore. We talked about the fact that no matter what expectations you are, how rational or even superhuman you are, yeah, that cannot occur. However, I do like the expression of money does not matter, because as far as I'm concerned, and as far as I think Mises was concerned, money indeed does not matter in, mon in mainstream monetary economics, because they don't offer any satisfactory account of the revolution in the price structure and the distribution of wealth that follows any change in the money supply. Yeah? The money supply does not actually change in the economy unless it changes in people's cash balances. Yeah, the money supply doesn't exist in the economy on its own, floating over it. Yeah, it exists in people's cash balances. But once people's cash balances is changed, it means their valuation, yeah, their the marginal utility of one unit of money changes. And we know there's subjective value, so it changes differently for different people. Yeah, and then there's different relative demands and so on. So once you understand that, and this is what Mises did by putting the real and the monetary sector together, once you understand that, then you understand that there's no way in which you can neutralize the effect of money on the real economy. Now, obviously, this is a big shortcoming as far as mainstream economics is concerned, and uh, the theoretical apparatus that they use does not allow them to um, overcome this shortcoming. But I... Reading it, I've become uh, slightly more cynical about whether 
Indeed, there is no way for them to think that this is not a, uh, a correct conceptualization of reality, or whether it's just very convenient to stay in this theoretical apparatus because it allows for one very important thing, which is justifying discretionary monetary management. Yeah? Once you get out of this theoretical apparatus and you realize that monetary what the effect of monetary changes on the economy is, then the role for the central bank, I mean, what the central bank can do, yeah, and what harm they, they produce on the economy becomes evident. So they may not want to do that to begin with. Now, something fun, um, because you've been very patient. Um, there's another way to show the neglect of Kantian effects in mainstream economics, other than categorizing it, in, as, as we've seen on the previous slide. And that's by using, seeing the, 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 the analogies that they use. When they talk about monetary adjustment, yeah, when they talk about the money supply and the prices adjusting after a change in the money supply. Or, you know, uh, the central bank activity, trying to, to tweak the prices, the price level in the economy, and target inflation. Uh, these are four of my favorite analogies. Um, I'm going to begin with, the, by, uh, with the, the one that you probably know the best, which is the one of communicating vessels, yeah? Uh, where the uh, adjustment of price levels in two different countries is compared to the principle of communicating vessels in um, uh, physics. And the idea is implied here is that these changes are simultaneous, yeah, and proportional. Um, just as the just as the money moves from let's say France to England, yeah, then prices will just scale up and down, yeah. Um, obviously, this this tends to occur in as far as aggregate uh, uh, magnitudes are concerned, but that only happens through a myriad of individual changes, yeah. If that eventually occurs, it occurs through individuals. Um, spending or uh, their cash balances or withholding the cash balances. So it's a combination of interpersonal equilibria that actually leads to this effect. It's not a hydraulic thing, yeah? Um, if I say this is a wagon, will this make... Dr. Murphy is not allowed to answer because he, uh, he, he, uh, he and I talked about this before the lecture. But if I say if this is a, this is a wagon, do you have an idea whose metaphor this is? Okay, um, Adam Smith compared money to a wagon way, yeah, that connects the productive activities in society, but which in and of itself is not productive, yeah? You have crops of corn and wheat, and then you have a, a road for the wagons. That's the monetary system, yeah, the circulating blood of the... But in and of itself, money is not productive. That was point one. Point two that Smith used with this analogy is to explain the benefits of paper money, which would be like a wagon way in the air. So unlike gold, who was being unproductive, yeah, paper money being a wagon way in the air would release productive resources, yeah, would release resources for productive activities. However, once, yeah, the, the, the analogy implies that money becomes something extra market. Yeah, money becomes something that again floats over the market and has no impact on the on the actual economy. And finally, these two are two analogies that I like just for how bad they are. They're terrible. 
They're both in um, Leland Yeager's International Monetary Relations. Um, he uses them to make um, a few points, and I think he does agree with, with one of them at least. Um, this one, it's a, it's a very cryptic slide, but I'll explain. So this one here is uh, a metaphor that Wilhelm Rapke used to explain what the central bank could do rather than allow the market to undergo a price level adjustment, yeah, so like general incomes and prices to adjust in the market through a process that is painful, yeah, to just adjust the nominal money supply, yeah. And he compared the two adjustments as follows. If you have a circus clown, I knew I was going to do this. So if you have a circus clown trying to sit down at a piano, he can do two things. He can try to put pull the piano to the chair, which is what the price level adjustment means, which is very difficult. Or he can just try to pull the chair to the piano, which is what adjusting the money supply would mean. Yeah. <laughs> now, obviously, the implication here is, is that the price structure is like a big block blob piano. I would like to see the clown trying to pull a bee closer to the swarm of bees or push the swarm of bees towards, you see? Yeah. Um, and the second one, which Jaeger uses from Friedman, is that of daylight savings time. Yeah, and I'll just give you the quote because we're um, getting close to the end. Um, Jaeger writes, so he compares monetary management and central bank activity with the adjustment made by daylight savings time. And he says, central bank monetary management is a more delicate and selective method operating directly where changes are re really required, really required. General price and income adjustments resemble arranging for more, for more daylight hours after work on summer evenings by having everyone adjust his daily schedule so that he does everything one hour earlier. Instead of making these myriad detailed changes in our habits, we simply adopt daylight savings time. Yeah? The, the analogy is misleading because it, it, it suggests that the adjustment, as I was trying to make, the point I was trying to make before, the adjustment of the money supply and the adjustment of the purchasing power and the price structure are independent of each other. And the point that Mises makes is that they're co-movements. One cannot occur without the other. They are the same process. Yeah. So changes in macroeconomic variables are nothing but changes in individual variables within the aggregated magnitudes. Yeah. Now, um, there are two implications. I am getting dangerously close to the end. So um, there are two implications, main implications of Cantillon effects, which again show just how far-raging this concept is. One is about policy and one is about methodology. Um, the point that Mises makes is that once you understand the dynamic driving force of money, and once you understand that the only thing you're actually analyzing in economics is a monetary economy, then the idea of static equilibrium yeah, being used for anything other than you know, um, as an instrument to highlight some aspects of the economy, the idea of static equilibrium being used as an, uh, as an approximation of, of, the, of the actual economy um, is, is uh, completely wrong. And Mises says money is necessarily a dynamic agent. And he concludes by saying neutral money is the last stronghold of the advocates of quantitative economics. It may seem like the last, it's the last straw that we have to tear down, but 
what actually what I think Mises means is that this idea of neutral money is so pervasive and informs their entire body of economic theory that actually in order to get rid of quantitative economics, you have to dig at the root of how they conceptualize the economy and in particular the monetary economy. Yeah? But as far as the method of economics is concerned, Mises says every correct economic consideration has to be dynamic and static concepts are only instrumental. Again, in his memoirs, he makes this point again. And he says um, the step-by-step -step method, which he uses to explain Kantian effects, renders the argument between short-run and long-run economics superfluous, and even the distinction between statics and dynamics becomes dispensable. And the second one, which I said concerns policy, obviously, is the idea that changes in purchasing power cannot be eliminated. Yeah? Um, that you cannot smooth out this process of adjustment of the purchasing power. Then you, can, you cannot undo it to put the purchasing power at a level that you would like it to be, or conversely, to target inflation. Yeah? Um, and Mises here makes the point between sound money and stable money. Yeah? Well, stable money means freezing an economic quantity in a world that is constantly in change and in a, in a monetary economy when money is the driving force of that. Sound money is actually a very attainable ideal and something that was attained before the World War I with the classical gold standard. Because the only thing sound money involves is that the government doesn't interfere with the money supply. Yeah. And as I was saying at the beginning, Yamisa says, in a living and a changing world, a world of action, there's no room left for neutral money. Money is non-neutral or it doesn't exist. And finally, the last thing that I wanted to point out, I would have wanted to spend a little more time on this, but um, it's just some application, something you can use Kantian effects for in your research. Um, obviously, the first obvious thing is business cycle theory. Yeah, If we would go back a couple of slides through the idea of that the monetary injection begins with the government and tends to go to credit markets, then Austrian business cycle theory, if you want, to, to simplify matters, becomes a step-by-step -step analysis of the differential impact that that injection of the money supply will have on um, the, the supply of credit and on the interest rate and on the structure of production and so on. Yeah, It's the same analysis, the same step-by-step -step, um, analysis or process analysis, as Mises called it. Something that I've done in my PhD research is look at the effect, look at Kantian effects on an international scale. Um, because credit markets tend to be integrated, credit and capital markets are integrated. So the effects of inflation in one economy, uh, or the Kantian effects of, of monetary inflation in one economy, ten, are no longer confined within the borders of that economy. Yeah? Um, and Business uh, cycles tend to be transmitted, and uh, price inflation tends to be transmitted, and changes in the structure of production tend to be transmitted internationally. And obviously, there's a change in the structure of trade. Yeah, if there's a change in the structure of production at home and abroad, there's going to be a change in the in the things that we trade. There's a change in comparative advantage, and so on. So I was trying to explore that area. Um, as well in terms of the volume, vol uh, volume, the value, and the structure of international exchanges. There's a boom in international trade as well during periods of boom in the business um, cycle. Um, and through that boom, you tend to um, create bubbles 
in your in the in 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 the countries of your uh, the country of the trading partners. There's an expression of bubble thy neighbor. Yeah, you know the expression in trade of beggar thy neighbor. Yeah, now there's there's been a, a bit of research on the idea of bubbling thy neighbor. Yeah. Um, obviously, once you figure out the idea of um, the first receivers of the new money are benefited and the last receivers give up wealth, you can start to think of it not just in terms of individuals of social groups, but also firms and the way they access credit markets. The bigger the firm, the more access to credit, the sooner the access to credit that they were going to have. The smaller the firm, yeah, the less the access. Or, again, there's some perverse effects there as well because small firms tend to have other credit lines because governments have subsidies and so on. It's medium firms that tend to have neither access to credit soon enough nor other subsidies and there's a growing literature on the the size of, uh, on the number of medium firms that is kind of being squeezed out. Yeah, you either have very large firms or very, so it's, it's, it's an interesting area to look at whether monetary policy does produce actually these kind of effects. And obviously, it's pretty straightforward, the idea of wealth inequality. We tend to talk about inequality in two ways, either the mainstream way, which is a very pervasive and uh, terrible phenomenon that needs to be tackled and has to do obviously with capitalism, or in order to counteract that, I did, I do notice that a lot of Austrians tend to overemphasize the idea that the market economy, on the one hand, has some un, uh, inherent inequalities, and on the other hand, it makes everyone more prosperous. But the idea of what can't, what what monetary policy does for inequality tends to kind of fall through the cracks. Yeah, in this kind of debate. And again, it's a very important point because there is indeed more inequality than it should be because we have the monetary policy that we have. Yeah? It's not a very easy quantifiable subject, but it, it's definitely something that's worth looking at. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And I'm sorry. I've <laughs>